Figure 13 shows what we call the mother of all studies because they provide vector autoregressions simulations over time of different monetary policies and their effects on different variables such as real GDP, consumer prices, long-run interest rates, and so forth for several of the countries that these authors look at. We notice two trends in these data. First, overall unconventional monetary policy has certainly helped economic growth and has actually helped to increase equity prices, unsurprisingly. But secondly, some of the error bands in these studies are so large as to be practically meaningless. So if we look at these cases in Canada, this case from the UK, even these two cases from the US, we see that the error bands basically cover the entire graph, suggesting that this simulation doesn't really tell us a whole lot about what's going on. Nevertheless, as we show in some of the other infographics, we are pretty confident that there is a positive relationship between unconventional monetary policy, such as through the purchase of public and private securities, and output we're much less certain about that role in investment. We now show several infographics where we see investment responding to these central bank policies, mostly by reducing risk and improving profits, thereby encouraging private investors to go into markets they might not typically go into. Figure 16a shows the contribution to investment growth from various factors in the jurisdictions you see in front of you. As a motivator for investment growth in places like Canada, Japan, we see that decreases in uncertainty have absolutely fueled increased demand for investment in some of these jurisdictions. Interestingly, credit growth has not been a major driver, except in places like Italy, negatively unsurprisingly in the US, and excess equity returns have helped to provide a lot of impetus for a lot of this investment. That suggests that even if central banks are not serving as funders of last resort in sopping up investments that others won't take on, they certainly help to encourage private investors to come into these markets because they end up taking less risk and expecting to get out at higher prices. And not only do we see this effect over different countries, but we also see this effect in the U.S., specifically in response to its own quantitative easing program. The figure in front of us shows the uh, risk premia for different maturities of securities these risk premia have fallen post-QE, definitely suggesting that central bank policy is able to change incentives facing private investors. So what do we actually know about the way that these higher equity prices encourage investment or not? It seems like a no-brainer that when stock prices and bond returns are going up, investors are going to want to buy those securities. And at first glance, we see there's actually a negative correlation between those two variables. Namely, if we just plot investment in private sector assets in different companies and equity returns from those countries, we see a negative correlation. However, when we control for different variables, as we discuss in the paper, naturally we see a positive relationship. 
and to some extent the data dispel the notion that all central banks around the world have been focusing their monetary policy and specifically their unconventional monetary policy on financing government deficits or buying government instruments. This infographic shows central bank portfolio orientation where higher bars mean that there's more of an orientation toward the purchase of private sector assets and what we see is that in some countries central banks have been far more private sector friendly than the popular media gives them credit for. We hear a lot about Japan, we hear about the EU, but judging from these data, we see that other economies, Poland, Mexico, Bulgaria, Turkey, assuming that we read the study correctly, they have been acquiring private sector assets much more than maybe a conventional theory of monetary policy might allow for. Similarly, when we look at the change in private assets to government assets, we see that some jurisdictions have been changing their portfolio allocations in order to target private sector asset prices and thus hopefully investment more. If we've read this study correctly, the data were rather hard to interpret. We see some countries such as Malaysia, Switzerland, Philippines, South Africa, we see them exhibiting large changes in the composition of their asset ratios relative to the amount of government paper they used to hold. Even looking at the role of the Federal Reserve during the crisis, we see that at that time, controversially, the Federal Reserve had served as a funder of last resort for small businesses and certain types of equipment acquisition. Thus, it's not the case that central banks have completely stayed out of this type of funding private sector assets or even serving as funders of last resort. And continuing with this theme of needing a central bank as a lender of last resort and investment, we see here in figure 29 the difference between potential and actual growth in the EU. One argument might be that the EU has not needed extra credit because there's been so much spare capacity in the system, and therefore any extra funding would simply have been unabsorbed because there wasn't enough demand. But what we see from this infographic is that there wasn't necessarily a spare capacity all through this time period. Therefore, it's simply not true that when there's a financial crisis or indeed any misallocation of money, for lack of a better term, the story is largely a demand-side story rather than a supply-side story.